boys and girls, and welcome to Popper's Cage, episode 21. I'm Dime Collector, also known as Jason Moore, and I'll be your host today. And we've got a brand new guest that we're throwing into the cage for this episode. From our clan Poppers, Popper Gnomes, I almost said it wrong there, we've got, all the way from the UK, we've got Matt. How's it going, Matt? Hi, it's going well here. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I know we've got a bit of an issue with the time difference, but hopefully we can uh, get through this without any problems there. And the reason I wanted to have you on is not only because you're in the Clan Popper Gnomes, but you are a pioneer of the deck we're going to be talking about, and that's the Simic Storm deck, which is a really interesting sort of combo deck that's becoming more popular right now in the metagame. And I think it's a deck that a lot of people should be aware of because from what I've heard from other members in our clan is that you've been having a lot of success with this deck. So I'm really excited to talk about it. But before we get into any of that stuff, why don't you go ahead and let listeners know a little bit more about you uh, just so they know your MTGO ID is Dog Biscuit, and I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with that. But why don't you just talk about you know how you got started playing Magic and what brought you to Popper and to MTGO? Yeah, sure. I started off playing some number of years ago when I was quite young. Um, started off relatively casual, but then moved into being a bit more serious. Won a couple of the junior tournaments in the UK. Um, so had my first taste of going to Worlds and a Grand Prix or two. But then after that, I took a break from Magic for a few years. So didn't see any of Shards of Alara or the new round of Mirrodin, but... I then decided to come back online, well, come back to the game, but decided to do it through MTGO because it was a lot more accessible and easy to get back in with the game. And at that point, I had nothing of a collection online, um, so I decided to move into Pauper because it's a great format to start off with, and it's also very competitive as well. But I started it before it was recognised by Wizards, so back at the casual level um, on the... Uh, I don't remember the name of it, PDC um, Magic. And then it was great to come back later on and find that this was a real format and something that you could play properly. So I then started brewing some different decks um, and then have been trying out a variety of elements of this one for a significant period of time now. (laughs) Fantastic. That sounds like you've uh, had quite a great experience just seeing how Popper has evolved and changed and stuff, especially with the recent bannings as well. Yeah, the recent bannings have definitely shaken up the format a lot. It's sad to see combo as a major pillar of the metagame disappear, although somewhat good for my deck, um, as I feel the the potential new flag bearer with a couple of other Fisher Storm variants for the, the title of Premier Combo deck. Yeah, that sounds really great, and I think that's going to segue us right into our main topic today, which is the Simic Storm deck. What we're going to start with here is a general overview of this Simic Storm deck. So why don't you start by just letting everybody know how the deck operates, what's its typical game plan, and how it wins. Well, the Simic Storm deck's all about getting the combo with Cloud of Fairies, Archaeomancer, and then typically Ghostly Flicker to make infinite mana. For those unfamiliar with the combo, if you have um, two lands which produce at least four mana, which we use land enchantments as well as the um, bounce lands to create, then a cloud of fairies on the board and an archaeomancer. Then you cast Ghostly Flicker on both creatures, 
Cloud of Fairies comes back into play, untapping both lands. The Archaeomancer returns the Ghostly Flicker from your graveyard to your hand, and you've made net at least one mana. If you're unfamiliar with the deck, and therefore might find that the amount of time it takes to execute the whole win condition and then attack with the creatures, it's possibly advisable to run a singleton of a card like Rolling Thunder. Um, it's quite useful to finish off the games quicker on time, but I've found through various iterations of the deck that effectively wasting a main deck slot on a card which isn't so useful before you combo off can be a, a notable disadvantage to running that sort of strategy. But it's an acceptable way to go, and some other people who've been taking on the deck um, have tried out various different options. That's really interesting, and I remember before the bans, I faced a few Temporal Fisher decks that killed with Grapeshot as well. And I've talked to a couple of people in our clan who said it is possible to deck the opponent with Compulsive Research. Have you heard of doing that, and can you talk about how that's possible? Yeah, no, I'm the one who taught them how to do that. <laughs> it's quite um, a time-intensive combo, but once you have two Archaeomancers in play, you can Ghostly Flicker both of them to return the Ghostly Flicker and another spell, in this case Compulsive Research. So if you can hit um, the Compulsive Research, the two Archaeomancers, and then the Cloud of Fairies to make mana, you can repeat the process, make loads and loads of mana, and then cast normally about 15 Compulsive Researches to them. So that's it's going to take quite a while to execute because you need to do around 15 compulsive research, at least 15 ghostly flicker, and make enough mana to cast both of those things. So that's going to be nearly 100 mana um, that you need to produce, and it can take a significant period of time off your clock. But there are certain decks which... At least game one, it's advisable to do it. So before the bans, you sometimes have to do that against Storm, and now potentially against Burn as well. It's the sort of thing where once you've bounced all their mountains so they can't cast Fire Blasts on you, you just make them draw their entire deck and mill out so they can't just untap and cast that Lightning Bolt or whatever final Burn spell they need to finish you off. All right, well, that's really crazy. I think we should definitely uh, move on and talk a little bit more about this deck because it already sounds very interesting here. So why don't you talk and kind of juxtapose the strengths and weaknesses of the deck? What are its strong points and what are its vulnerabilities, if there are even that many? Well, the deck has a number of strengths against the more linear aggro decks of the format. So decks like Stompy and White Weenie, which just want to attack you. And you can tell what clock they're on quite easily. And it's just a case of playing a few creatures, stalling for a little while, until you get all of the combo elements together and you can go off. And there's relatively little they can do. You have to play against around vines and that sort of thing, but it's fairly straightforward. And against those kind of decks and the random off-color decks that you occasionally see that don't know how to interact with you properly... It can be relatively easy to just have complete control of the game, go off when you want, and bury those kind of decks. The slightly more complicated issues are when you're fighting against decks like Delver or Blue-Red Post. Land destruction can be a particular issue, but it just depends on the volume and what else they've got to back it up. So there's certainly a, a challenging element there, and there's a the one major weakness to the deck, which thankfully isn't a major part of the metagame, are decks strictly like Burn, which I think isn't a good deck in the abstract. It doesn't have that many good matchups overall, but it does 
just operates slightly too well against our deck because it can be just about fast enough and none of the bounce spells or creatures or anything else actually have a major impact on them. So you lose your interaction and then they can end up just burning you out a turn too early. On the small issue of the actual popularity of these Fisher Storm decks, I've been taking records for the last about 40 dailies that I've been playing. And Familiar Storm has been one of the least represented decks. I think I've played against it yeah, four times out of around 40-odd dailies, most of which are four rounds if you're, you're playing it all out. So it's a very small part of the metagame. And I think I can appreciate that it's it's a kind of frustrating and annoying deck to play against. And if it becomes sufficiently popular, I can see that it may end up receiving a ban. But I think right now, with its very low levels of popularity, it's not actually a major actor in the metagame. That's an interesting point. And I think maybe one of the reasons it might not be as popular right now is that, particularly with this version, what I've been told is that it does take a little while to pilot it optimally and you know some people were suggesting even going into a single player solitaire and just kind of running the deck to get a feel for it and i think that segues pretty nicely into our next uh our next topic here which is why people should play it what are the benefits uh for a player to sleeve up this deck and learn it and what are some of the downsides i think it's a really interesting deck to play i mean obviously i'm biased as having been the like developer of the deck but it requires you to know exactly when you need to switch between different modes, whether, I guess with this build, you're less likely to be the aggressor, but when you need to be control, when you need to just be digging for combo elements, knowing the format inside out as to what answers people are going to have against you. And it's the sort of deck which it really rewards the attention to detail, which certain other decks might be a bit less forgiving. So if you want a deck that you don't have to worry about so much in terms of piloting, and if you are going to make a few mistakes, and then you can still still do well with. But I think this one, because there are so many elements happening all the time, it really rewards that attention to detail and trying to iron out every part of your game. And it also has a very interesting element with mulligan decisions, which I'm sure we'll come back to later, um, which can really reward a player for knowing their deck. And once you do know the deck and you can pilot it well, then, at least from my results, it seems like it can be quite a viable contender in the metagame. Great. Are there any other downsides associated with playing this deck besides the the learning curve there? Do you think that um, in terms of how it plays out or maybe some of its vulnerabilities, there might be uh, some players who would want to stay away from it? I think it depends what happens to the metagame. If land destruction becomes even more popular, then it may well move to be an unwise choice. At the minute, with the post decks that are running, say, three Stone Rain and two Earthrift, that's not too bad. And if you play correctly, you can work around it. But once people start either upping that number or you see people typically running, say, four boomerangs in Delver and then four thermocast in the sideboard of the green aggro decks, each of these elements just makes it slightly harder. And I think once you hit a critical point, it's going to become a bad choice if it becomes sufficiently popular that you see this much more hate arriving in the metagame. 
So I think this will be a great opportunity for us to go ahead and move on to the composition of the deck, beginning with the mana base and also the, uh, I guess we could call it the mana ramp elements in the deck. Why don't we start there since that's so important to the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I imagine that you'll have a, a link to the deck posted along with the, the podcast. And I went through a large number of different iterations of the land enchantment foundation of the deck. Utopia Sprawl is by far the best one. It costs one mana. You basically always put it on blue, and it's a great ramp into a turn two compulsive research or moving into overgrowth or the other elements of the deck. One of the major things that you have to bear in mind is the one of the major restrictions on how you're able to go off is to have enough access to blue mana, and that's why we have four Utopia Sprawls, two Fertile Grounds, and two Overgrowths. The overgrowths are the biggest ramp land enchantment, and the two mana that you can tap the turn you cast it a lot of the time makes a massive difference. But to having too many overgrowths or using wild growth, which would be another major contender in the land enchantment section, just ends up leaving you with not enough blue mana to go off with the blue blue on Archaeomancer and casting all of the cantrips which is why we need Fertile Ground to augment the Utopia Sprawls, although I would rather just run two more Utopia Sprawls. And that then gets combined with the Simic Growth Chambers for the Bounce Land as another avenue for both creating virtual card advantage as well as being able to produce more mana in the deck. This is then combined with currently two to- Coiling Oracle, which are a currently changeable spot, so they may become repeal. It, you may want to add an additional cantrip, or you may want to run Seagate Oracle. But so far it can be can be really good to run turn one serum visions, turn to coiling oracle, put Simic Growth Chamber into play. That's kind of the ideal draw. But the main section then for ramp is obviously Cloud of Fairies and Snap, which untap your land when you cast them. And this allows you to make some really obscene plays quite early in the game. You typically want to make sure that you're untapping about four mana's worth of land whenever you use a Cloud of Fairies or a Snap. But it can be quite nice to, on turn three, just go Cloud of Fairies into Hardcast Moldrifter, which can just put a lot of decks back that step, draw you some extra cards, and get you ready to combo off the next turn or so. I think in terms of the other elements of the mana side of the deck, you have to make sure that you draw the right balance between casting land enchantments and draw spells. And a lot of the time, you just want to get the mana out there. But Against certain decks like Fairies, you want to make sure that you're always bearing in mind and playing around spells as a sprite. So you may end up using things in a slightly clunky manner, but in order to make sure that you you maximize your chance of winning by making them counter the thing you want them to counter. But yeah, I think that's all I've got to say on the mana base side. Okay, great. Well, that takes us to the win conditions in the deck. And obviously, this is a deck that's centered around using the card Temporal Fisher, which has the storm mechanic and uh, bounces the opponent's permanence and even sometimes your own permanence to their controller's hand. And from there, is it usually just going to be game over for the opponent? I mean, obviously, you're going to have a board of creatures where you can keep swinging on them while they're playing their lands back out. But do you ever find that that's not necessarily going to be enough to win? Or do you find that you maybe need other type of avenues of victory? Or uh, how does it work? In a pinch, you've always got the compulsive research kill, although that's relatively rare. And you do risk yourself timing out if you have to do that too many times. But in general, it's just a case of casting all of your creatures. You'll be able to return all of their permanents every turn. 
with Ghostly Flicker on two of the Archaeomancer or Mnemonic Wall, you can return the Ghostly Flicker and the Fisher, which means that every turn you'll be able to bounce any permanent that they do play. And normally it's worth just attacking. Some variants, if you're a bit worried about the amount of time it's going to take to kill them, do run Rolling Thunder. But I, f- I think that it's a bit of a waste slot and you're really worth just going for the creature grind kill especially since you can hold up mana to protect your creatures as well with multiple ghostly flickers and snaps so there's no need to run into almost any form of hate once you've got the lockdown properly not even something like baduka bog which can be a problem part way through the game but when you're at that stage you can just ghostly flicker on two of your archaeomancer type things and return all of the spells that you need from your graveyard back to your hand Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about the card selection and the card draw in the deck. And I think this is going to be really interesting because this deck in particular is playing four copies of Serum Visions as well as four copies of Preordain. Um, so I'd love to hear your, your explanation on how you came about with the card draw and what it actually is doing in this deck. Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, I would like to just compare the general style of card draw and selection in this build of Fish Storm as opposed to others. So in this one, we're running nine cantrips currently that may well go up by one or more. Um, we're running two compulsive research and then three moldrifters as our major form of card draw. The Fisher Storm decks run a much higher selection of the expensive card draw spells, so things like 4C and Deep Analysis. And I used to run that with some of the older builds of this deck, but I found just the early selection and digging through greatly increased the speed of the deck and gives you a lot more options and play at any given point all you often need is a preordain say off the top and that'll still be enough to go off in the late game if you have enough mana the most important choice then is when we're looking at the one drop cantrips obviously the alternative premier one one drop cantrips are brainstorm and ponder with sleight of hand being another potential option alongside what i've chosen of preordain and serum visions i feel that preordain and serum visions have got for this deck, significantly the best options when I've been trying out a variety of, of different suites of cantrip spells. The brainstorms were much too often just a draw a card because with a lack of shuffle effects, and I definitely don't want to use shuffle lands because it slows down the deck, you end up drawing those cards, having to put two back on top, and then just redrawing them again with a card like Compulsive Research or Moldrifter. Preordain and Serum Visions have the massive advantage that you can just cast them. You'll get at least you'll get three cards deep when you're looking for, for spells, and you don't have to take any spells that you don't want. You can just put them to the bottom with Scry. And that's one of the frustrations that I've had with Ponder, is that while it's a very good cantrip, Sometimes, particularly on turn one, if you've had to keep a one-island hand, Ponder can be a lot harder to get you over the line, because if you, say, see a set of three that has Forest, Ghostly Flicker, Ghostly Flicker, at that early stage in the game, you really don't want those flickers, but you do want the land. Whereas if you have Preordain or Serum Visions, you can just draw that forest, put one or two of the Ghostly Flickers to the bottom, and you'll be well on your way to drawing your next land and, and getting out of that early game potential stumble the next point then is the three mana slot or slightly higher draw spell slot which is currently in the place of compulsive research compulsive research is an excellent card for the deck and it may well want a third copy 
it doesn't have an immediate board presence and it costs three mana, which is why it's only down to two copies right now. But it, drawing three cards is a massive difference and it's a great thing to be able to do on turn two off a Utopia Sprawl. And it works very nicely with the Simic Growth Chambers where you can return a basic back to your hand and then discard it with Compulsive Research. Typically with the Moldrifters, you want to hard cast them and not evoke them, especially with the nice interactions with Snap and Ghostly Flicker. They often form the backbone of your late game card draw, where you can play them, draw two, potentially draw out a removal spell, or draw loads more when you're combining it with Snap, Flicker, and then sometimes fissuring your own Moldrifter. So I think that's the general form of the deck. You always cast Serum Visions first if you're in the very early turns, but then later on, if you're going to be casting multiple cantrips in a single turn, then you typically want to cast Preordain, so that if you want to keep both cards, then you put one back on top and then draw it with the Serum Visions draw a card effect, and then the scry happens afterwards, so you get maximum value out of it. Ponder typically wants to be cast first if you draw it, but that slot, Ponder is always a slightly more challenging one, as you sometimes have to keep cards that you don't want to. I think that pretty much covers the card draw aspect of the deck, although you should also bear in mind that Archeomancer and Mnemonic Wall sometimes just want to be cast like a Moldrifter on a cantrip or a compulsive research in certain matchups, where they're better off just playing that value creature role while you're building up the correct hand. Great. I really like the the level of intricacy that seems to be woven into this deck already. It sounds like there's a lot of play to it, and it's really easy to uh, make a suboptimal play uh, when you have so many options here. So this seems like a, a very skill-intensive deck, and I think that's that's really great for this format. Yeah, even having played it for some number of years even now, this particular build is, is only a few months old at the minute for me, but it's so easy to just make a couple of wrong decisions on the cantrips and the scry in the early game, and you can just throw away games that otherwise you would win really easily just by making the right cantrip choices. So it's a deck that you really need to get used to in order to get full value out of it, but when you do, I think it really pays dividends. So that leaves the interactive elements of the deck, and I would lump this in with some of the bounce, like repeal, and maybe some of the sideboard slots as well, but feel free to talk about any other uh, miscellaneous elements of the deck as well from here. But let's go ahead and start with some of the the more interactive uh, cards in the deck. Absolutely. We're running three Temporal Fisher, so if we were purely running it as a kill spell only, we would probably only be running one or two copies. But Temporal Fisher, when you can hit one for three or four on turn three or four, it can really cripple certain post decks. And also you can use it as a just general form of disruption with a small turn of a Cloud of Fairies, a Snap, and a Cantrip or an Oracle, just to cast one that's sufficiently large to set them back two or three turns. And it's one of the major forms of interaction with the deck that you might even cast two or three turns before you go off properly. The other elements are just playing the creatures out just to block and to gain a bit of time. A Moldrifter, particularly against Delver, can be quite a major threat and hold them back a lot. And then, yes, I've introduced currently one appeal to the main deck, although that may go up to two or three. And it can be a really nice cantripping bounce spell, and it can go infinite with the Archaeomancer and Mnemonic Wall. So if you've already got infinite mana, with Ghostly Flicker and Cloud, or just with a Snap combo with Archaeomancer on the Monic Wall, then you can cast Repeal on the Archaeomancer, and then recast it to return the Repeal. And since you draw a card each time you do that loop, it's another way of making um, an infinite 
draw of cards. But the main deck is somewhat less interactive, typically, aside from Fisher. But the sideboard really brings your interactivity to the fore. So against aggro decks, we have a current suite of four moments piece, which, fair enough, aren't the most interactive of the defensive cards, but really shut down those decks that can't do anything apart from attack with creatures. But then we also have two Repeal, two Hydroblast, two Una's Gate Warden, and one Serrated Arrows. I've been trying out a number of different sideboard strategies against Delver, and I'm quite enjoying the way that this current sideboard also can apply to a number of other decks. So this current suite really increases your interactivity and ability to deal with goblins and other small early decks like that, as well as repealing Scattershot Archer, say, against Stompy. So it's all about removing their first few threats as they come on the board in turns one and two so that they just don't overrun you and you have the time to take control and then eventually combo off. That sounds solid, and I I also like the uh, the sideboard slots you've chosen. There's a lot of uh, versatility there, for sure. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure exactly where the sideboard will settle down, but at the minute I'm quite liking it. And then the four Thermocaster in there for the post-decks. They're much weaker on the draw, but on the play they tend to be quite strong. And it will also depend on whether or not post-decks start running Is It Charm? It's always been a, like, a niche of some post decks that have been running it, but it can be a really nice um, speed boost and mean that when you cast them a cast, they may well still be able to land destruction you back. So I'm not sure, not being a post player, exactly what role Is It Charm plays, but it can be a bit of a problem for us. <laughs> Do you mean Is It Signet, the, uh, the random artifact? Oh, yeah, artifact? sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. Is It Signet, the two-mana artifact, rather than Is It Charm? Okay, I was going to say. I think that there's a balance in the deck in that I have in the past run a couple of copies of Deep Analysis or Forcey as big late-game draw spells that almost just win you the game on the spot. But I found that they've been a bit clunky in practice. We've already mentioned Rolling Thunder. I think that a couple more copies of either Compulsive Research or potentially Seagate Oracle might work for that early creature, small amount of board presence, which can just buy you half a turn a turn against certain decks. And then there's also a question of exactly how many, say, ghostly flickers you run and temporal fishers and the land enchantment bases. So there's always a couple of spots, but in general, I'm happy with the large majority of the deck, and I don't see it changing that much in the near future. Okay, cool. I actually have one question for you here. There is a, the split of two Archaeomancer and one Mnemonic Wall here. And can you just talk a little bit about what led you to end up playing that split as opposed to, like, three of one of them? I think, in general, the one mana less on the Archaeomancer makes it typically an easier choice to cast. And also there's a minor benefit that it's not a May on the returning an instant or sorcery, which makes it just that slightly bit quicker when going off. But there are certain decks, one, say, with Lightning Bolt out of Blue-Red Post or Electrostatic Blast or some of the targeted black removal as well, which Mnemonic Wall escapes. Another benefit of Mnemonic Wall is that it only costs one blue in its casting cost, which means that when you're setting up, say, a snap combo where you snap one of these creatures, cast it again, returning the snap, and snap it again, the single blue casting cost can actually be quite relevant when you have a couple of lands with overgrowths on them or only a single sprawl. So I've had the occasional situation where I can make 
um, unlimited just green mana with Archaeomancer, and then I can filter it through by using the snap loop on the mnemonic wall. And that slight element of the additional versatility, I feel makes it better to have two in one. But I think that that's open for others to potentially decide on. Although if I were going to head in a different direction, it might be to either add a single more copy of Archaeomancer or just switch to three away from the mnemonic wall. But I found it's been really useful for me, so I don't intend to change that. All right, sounds good. So I think we can definitely move on to talking about opening hands, uh, what kind of openers are good, and how this deck mulligans and stuff. So a good place to start would just be to talk about what are you looking for in your opening hand? What is an ideal opener? What kind of cards do you think are necessary in order to make a a keepable hand? Well, there are certain absolutely ideal opening hands which let you go off turn three, which I've had a number of times. So they will involve something like a Utopia Sprawl. You're always happy when you see that in your hand, pretty much. It'll involve a cantrip of some kind, preferably a Simic Growth Chamber, and then some combination of Cloud of Fairies, Archaeomancer, possibly Flicker or Fisher, and then one of the more value creatures like Archaeomancer or Moldrifter. The main thing to look out with is this with this deck is that there are certain hands which might look okay but really aren't. So a hand where you have, say, three forests and you might have an overgrowth even, and then some blue spells is completely unkeepable no matter what those other spells are. You must have in your opening hand a way of making blue mana. But there are some hands which look like they might not work but really are okay. Particularly Simic Grove Chamber can really rescue some of those otherwise like five-card hands, say. A land, a Simic Growth Chamber, you're playing almost like a six-card hand. And then if you have a compulsive research then you're basically back to parity already without having to worry about it, and you've had your mana advanced as well. Simic Growth Chamber is a bit of a massive benefit and potential curse, because only running 18 lands, having 14 lands, which you must have one of in your opening hand, can occasionally feel a bit worrying, but there are so many one-land hands with a land and a couple of cantrips, or forest and utopia sprawl, which can actually work out really well. You just have to make sure that you're not too attached to that Utopia Sprawl if you draw a Growth Chamber. Sometimes you just have to do it and knock that land enchantment off. How important is it to have you know, some aspect of the combo, say, uh, if you have Temporal Fisher in hand, but maybe you don't have the other components like Cloud of Fairies? You know, where is really the, uh, the acceptable le- level of uh, keeping a hand that only has part of your combo or maybe doesn't have anything that can actually combo? There's, there's no need to have any of your combo in your in your opening hand at all. The deck will roll along going through all of its cantrips and card draw spells. Preferably, you want to be able to have at least one of the multiple mana per land cards, so Sprawl, Fertile, Overgrowth, and Growth Chamber. Ideally, you have at least one of those. But as long as you've got enough of the cantrips or compulsive research or anything like that, you really don't need any of the core combo elements. Also, Fisher doesn't really count as one of those. It's more of an interaction card, at least in terms of if you're thinking about assembling the combo overall. Preferably, you'll have a cloud of fairies. But really, there's no there's no requirement to have any one of those cards. You'll draw enough and look through enough cards in the early turns of the game just to not need to have it in your opening hand. 
Gotcha. So let's go ahead and talk about, you did mention mulligans a little bit already, but kind of clarify a little more how well does the deck mulligan and against what kind of opponents should you aggressively mulligan? Should you really, you know, be looking for certain things in your hand to make sure that you're going to stay alive? It definitely depends on the matchup and whether or not we're in game one. Typically in game one, we're just a combo deck. Even if we can find out what the opponent's playing, we have a pretty set standard as to what it is that we're going to be looking for in an opening hand. You have to mulligan fairly aggressively with the deck. It's possible that I even have an average hand size of six. You often do need to mulligan a hand, but it's very easy to win off fewer cards. That becomes something that you'll you'll need to work out over time. It definitely does depend to a certain extent, matchup to matchup. But as a combo deck, you're typically more focused on making sure that you can operate rather than worrying too much about the interactive elements. I think the point with the deck is that as a combo deck, there are certain cards and certain matchups that you would rather see, but you don't typically want to mulligan for them because you do need a critical mass of mana, card draw, and then your combo in order to actually make it. If you're trying to mulligan for specific answers, they're never going to be quite as good as actually just getting on with what the deck wants to do. So the deck will mulligan a fair amount, but not normally looking for silver bullet answers, like you might have wanted, say, Electric Decree and Blue Red Post against Warren Storm. It's not that kind of dynamic. Okay, so uh, there's two very important things that I want to talk about, especially because we have you on here and you're such a pioneer of this deck. And that's basically just maybe talking about your process of developing this deck and how it's changed over time and you know how you've enjoyed playing it and stuff. Sure. Well, the deck started quite some time ago um, when I was chatting to a friend and they came up with the idea of a freed from the real Arbor Elf and Cross and Restorer kind of crazy deck. But it set off a chain where as the the deck evolved, I moved past that like core creature-based element for making the mana because it's much too vulnerable to the removal spells that are everywhere. But the core section of having land enchantments that produced extra mana and then Cloud of Fairies and Snap really worked. And... This was in the days um, before Frantic Search was banned. So I came up with the original blue-green build of this deck before Esper existed at all. Won a primary event with it, other people seemed to start copying my deck, and then I disappeared for a good year and a half and came back to find Frantic Search was banned. (laughs) Um, And apparently Familiar Storm had been winning everything. It then led me to come back to the deck because I still thought that there was a, a viable shell here. Over time, it's definitely progressed from a slightly clunkier build as it's become more streamlined and moved towards the cantrip element. For a while, I used Ninja the Deep Hours and a number of other creatures, and it was a slightly more tempo, aggro-control combo deck, which potentially lost a little bit of its focus. And I feel that now, once the, the cantrip base of the deck has been established, it's a lot more consistent and does what it wants to do in a more forthright manner. I've always enjoyed kind of brewing and looking at new com- new decks, particularly attracted to combo, but not exclusively. I think it's really fantastic that you've stuck with this deck for so long and, and really just developed it from the ground up. And another reason I wanted to have you on the show 
which I think is tremendously just phenomenal, is that you've really inspired other players in our clan to pick up this deck. And it's to me, it's sort of become almost like a team deck where uh, you guys are, have been workshopping this thing and talking about all the interactions, all the card choices. I, I think it's really inspiring, and it's something I've been hoping to do with the clan, but uh, I'm glad it just came about so naturally. And I definitely want to play this deck myself. I the, the only problem is I don't have a lot of free time these days to really sit down and, and be able to master something like this. So once I do get the time, this is this will definitely be on my list. And I, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys more about the deck and, and sharing our results and stuff and really pushing this deck forward. Um, so I think it would be great to hear you know, one of the big selling points of this deck, which is, as far as I can tell from what I've heard uh, from our other members, how well it actually performs in the popper format and, and the type of results it's putting up, how its matchups are, and how much this actually wins. So can you go ahead and start and let people know about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously this deck has come to the point where I originally had my first version of it and was incredibly glad to just get a 3-1 out of a daily event. But now it's definitely moved into something which I play a lot um, and regularly money in. It's relatively rare that I will get knocked out of a of a pauper daily these days. I've been taking um, records because I wasn't entirely sure, obviously, with not many other people playing the deck as to whether or not it was an actual contender. And I've been having my match win percentage oscillate between about 72 and 75 percent. So it's been working working really well for me. In theory, with Grixis Storm and Infect leaving, which were were one of my weaker matchups, although still like 50 to 55 percent, it should be good. Although I think that's going to be slightly counteracted by a very minor reduction in the matchups against Post and Delver, where they will increase their anti-land suite of sideboard cards given that post is clearly a major player in the metagame i've been finding that i mean it's fantastic against stompy i think i've lost one match in 15 against the deck um and it plays out very similarly to the hexproof aura deck delver when you play it correctly you have a significant um advantage in so that's typically between 60 and 70 percent my match win but it varies a lot on how good the other player is that matchup really comes down to playing around Spellstuster Spy. And then again, Blue-Red Post, possibly not quite as good a matchup for us as the Familiar Storm build, but I've still been getting around 80% with it. And I just feel that, for me anyway, it's been a great way of really understanding all the intricacies of the metagame while still posting up pretty good results, or at least as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> those sound like great results to me. I think those sound very, very strong. The only bad matchups seem to be very small parts of the metagame at the minute. So if the metagame turned completely into red aggro decks, we fiend or burn, then it, I could see the deck really shifting its place. But right now with Stompy, Delver and Blue Red Post, I'm really happy to be running a deck that's got good matchups against all three. Nice. And matchups are going to be the entire topic of our, our very next portion here. But before we get into all that, let's just go ahead and take about five minutes of a break and uh, we'll kind of collect some notes together and we'll get ready to break down all of those matchups right after this. Sure.
Welcome back, guys, to the second half of this Simic Storm episode. It's Popper's Cage number 21. And now is the time for us to break down the matchups of Simic Storm. I think it's going to be one of the selling points of the deck is that it does have some good matchups in this current metagame. So we're going to start with one of the most popular decks in this entire format, and that's the Mono Blue Delver deck. I tend to refer to it as Mono Blue Fey, but uh, we basically all know what this deck looks like. It's it's playing a lot of islands, and it's playing Delver of Secrets, Cloud of Fairies, Spell Stutter Sprite, a very tempo-oriented deck. So why don't you go ahead and start and talk about uh, how favorable the matchup is. You did mention a little earlier that you, you feel it's pretty favorable, but dependent on the uh, play skill of your opponent. And uh, talk about how a typical game is going to play out also. I think one of the interesting things about playing the Delver matchup is it's quite rare to have a, a typical game. It's very intricate. It takes a lot of judging what your opponent has, when you need to bait something, when you're free to just go off. But typically revolves around trying to not get yourself too far behind in the early game, but principally to give yourself an opening, preferably with two of the Snap or Cloud of Fairy type spells, so that you can just go off, even through a single counter when they're not really expecting it. It will be sufficient to just cast a Moldrifter, maybe flicker it once, but often a Moldrifter will just give you enough time and enough board presence to, to get you there. There is a slight difference between the two different styles of Delver. So I feel the Mezzle um, list, which is slightly more controlling, a couple more counter spells, running Quicksand, plays slightly differently to the X-Mimex, Frostburn Weird, slightly more aggressive builds. And you need to always, against this deck, bear in mind Spell Stutter Sprite. If you just play ordinarily like you would against most other decks, you can just get wrecked by Spellstuster Sprite, ninjuring it to cast it again, or Snap, or any of those type of spells. You need to make sure that they get almost no value out of that, which then leaves them with just four counter spell and maybe two days. Days is a card which often you just can't afford to play around, but if you can, you can really limit their counter spell options and make sure that you just have more cards for them to counter than they can possibly manage. Right. So essentially, like you said, there's, there isn't a typical way a game will play out, but they are going to be pro providing a little bit of early pressure. And then they have to temper that with how much they actually want to react and counter some of your plays. So I would imagine this deck doesn't provide an insanely fast clock to really pressure you to want to combo off. But for instance, with a ninja or something like that, if that hits the table, does that pressure you a lot to want to um, have to do something about it or combo before they draw you know, a bunch of cards off of that? Turn two ninja on the play from them is possibly the worst thing that we can have happen. It's worse, I think, than just a Delver, even if it flips on turn one, because they can then often sit back. They'll draw all of their land drops, which is actually very important for them because it means they're much more likely to hit for land and be able to hold up two counter spells at a time. Most of the Delverlists have really cut back on their land count, which makes total sense for them, but it means that often they won't have enough mana to put on pressure and hold up two counter spells as you move into the sort of mid-game. You don't have so much damage pressure typically, but there are certain games where they can really come out the gates. So it's all about judging when you 
need to go off and need to do something and just hope that they don't have that counter. And when you can just wait an extra turn or two, craft the perfect hand and go for Fisher to set them sufficiently far back that they just can't get back into the game. It's a really interesting matchup to play. And it's one which really rewards each player knowing how the other one operates. So I feel that against particularly skilled pilots, it's probably pretty even. It's quite difficult to to tell exactly who is likely to win most of the games. Whereas I feel against slightly less experienced pilots where you can tell exactly what they've got, where they're doing, what, what they're aiming to achieve, um, then the deck becomes much easier. Because it's also very unclear from their side whether they should be tapping out to put pressure on or whether they have to hold back for a counterspell. And if you either are able to get a good Fisher hand when they're holding back or if you're able to just go off when they've committed to what seems like a safe board position, you can punish them for not knowing your deck as intimately as you do. So why don't we talk about sideboarding a little bit? How do you sideboard for this matchup? Are there any important cards that you bring in? And do you find that they bring in particular cards against you to uh, improve their their win percentage here? I don't typically find that their methods of interacting with us change all that much. I imagine they take out a couple of the cards, the bounce spells, which don't operate as well for them. Some of them add an additional hard counter or two. Um, and there are some slight changes that they make, but nothing that really changes their game plan or makes us really worried. In terms of our response to them, the sideboard strategy is still in development, and I may well want to cut one of the thermocasts from the board for another card which might be good against Delver and potentially change the package. I'm interested in trying out Scattershot Archer as my utility creature. I've used Delver before because we have a pretty high chance ourselves of flipping it, and it deals with all of their threats. The main issue with Delver from a sideboarding point of view is that for this matchup, we'll typically win if it goes long and they haven't got too much pressure on unopposed ninja, which means that we need something really early and cheap to get through the counterspell part to disrupt the game plan. There isn't one creature which deals with a Delver in the skies, the fairies, a ninja, a phantasmal bear, and a frostburn weird, all in one creature that will be a nice response to it. So you have things like Una's Gate Warden, which I'm currently using, which is good because it trades with everything, but only trading with a cloud of fairies can sometimes be a bit underwhelming. Repeal is a great interactive early spell and is particularly shines against Delver, where you can cast it for one, cantrip, bounce, and ruin their flip turn. But it doesn't say deal with a ninja that's on the board, because that will cost five mana. So it's always a balance between all of these different options that you have available as to how you construct a sideboard and go about your game plan. And as far as sideboarding for this matchup, there is one card I have seen in some of the Delver lists these days, and you mentioned it earlier, and that's Boomerang. And I have to imagine that Boomerang is in their decks uh, for uh, hitting lands and stuff early to try and disrupt. Have you found that to be the case? Do they bring that in against you, and how has it worked out? I think, obviously, with Echoing Truth no longer being quite as strong as it used to be with Empty the Warrens being gone, there has been a slight shift towards some players running Boomerang. I think typically Snap and then even Vapor Snag tend to help the Delver decks more. But there has been the odd list running Boomerang, and it can be a problem. I mean, obviously, I would 
probably prefer that they weren't running it. But it's not a massive kill-all in the deck. You, It's just much better if you know whether or not they're playing it in terms of how you play out your land enchantments and those kind of um, interactions where you can minimize the effect that a boomerang will have. So the next deck on my list is going to be the Is It Cloud Post deck, which is sort of the premier control deck running around right now, the blue-red Cloud Post. Uh, so how is this matchup for you? Do you find it favorable, even, or you know, do you ha- are you happy to see this matchup? Uh, pre-ban, I had an 81% game win against Is It Post, and it was the sort of deck that I was... Of the island preordained starts, I would be much happier if they followed it up with Cloud Post rather than Island Cloud of Fairies. I feel that this sort of matchup, when you lose, you lose really badly, but overall it is actually favourable. So the biggest problem comes in game two, depending on the number of Pyroblasts, even Stone Rain and Earth Rift that they bring in. So normally, if they only have about five of those, if you play correctly and you make sure that you do the right level of disruption and when to expose your lands or not, then it tends to be okay. But it can, it is something that you definitely need to be careful of. Game one tends to be a really good matchup for us against these decks. It's quite difficult to lose game one when their only really good option is capsize and they don't have that much else apart from a few counters. I feel that the matchup has got slightly worse now that Infector's left because the number of one-mana burn spells that a post-deck must run has reduced, which gives them a little bit more game against us, but it's still certainly a, a deck that I would be happy to face. Okay, and how do the, the games play out? Are they, are they fairly uninteractive since they don't have a lot to stop you outside of maybe some counter spells and, and capsize? And what cards are really important outside of capsize? Like on your end of things, do you have anything that, that's really particularly devastating against them? Well, Temporal Fissure is really the key card here. When you get a Temporal Fissure, even on like turn three or four for most, if not all, of their lands, that almost just means that when you win the game right there it's very difficult for them to recover from that even if you end up with a more or less empty hand afterwards it's the sort of matchup where given that they don't have loads of counter spells you can normally just push on through you just need to be careful when you're going off that you don't play into that one of red mana um, burn spell and make sure that you notice when they do have red available, even if it's off a glimmer post through a prophetic prism. It's something that's really easy to just fall into that trap and throw away a game when there was no need to. All right, so how about sideboarding for this matchup? Uh, do you actually bring in anything? Do you, I, obviously, you have Thermocarst in your board, but do you, do you find that you need to bring it in against them for, for this game? Thermocarst is really useful against post, but principally when you're on the play. What they will often do is expect a Pyroblast that they've boarded in to be effective against anything that you're going to be casting for your turn. So where in game one, you might be quite happy to cast a Compulsive Research, say, on turn two or three. Now they they will often have that one red Pyroblast mana up, and you can wreck them with a Thermocast when they're not expecting you to be able to cast something that will get through. So it's really strong when you can cast it on the play, keep them off three mana, and push back their tempo while you're developing your board. It's significantly weaker when you're on the draw. So the number that you board in will vary as to whether or not you're on the play or the draw. 
and it is possible that I will be cutting one of the four, as typically when you're bringing four in, you may well want to reduce the fish account from three to two, because otherwise you have too many of the same kind of card, which can mean that you're, you can draw dead in the later game. If you top one of those, it's quite bad, but if you have one that you can cast between turns three and five, then they're both very strong. So they can be very good, but are dead at times. Okay, and then they're bringing in, I'm assuming, a lot of cards against you between uh, Hydroblast, or not Hydroblast, Pyroblast, and Earth Rift, Stone Rain, cards like that, essentially? Yes, absolutely. Their land destruction is much better than yours in the sideboard games. The Stone Rains and Earth Rains can be pretty problematic. You brought in two Hydroblast. Um, any more than that become dilutes the deck more than it helps. So it may well be that I put a couple of turn aside in the board at some point if non-red land destruction becomes a bigger part of the metagame. And you do want at least one, possibly two Hydroblast. But remember they're also primarily used to counter the opposing Pyroblast because it can be almost a more important card in the matchup than the land destruction itself because it's that much more versatile as a hard counter that only costs one mana. Okay, and what are you boarding out to uh, bring the cards in for this matchup? Ghostly Flicker is the sort of card which you'll often find quite versatile and can effectively counter a land destruction spell, but is very weak just on its own, especially since they have a certain amount of removal. So I'll typically board one of those out. Occasionally I will board out a snap depending on the their type of build, but often just the mana acceleration from those is really important and will do the job anyway. I will typically cut the Coiling Oracles, because although they're quite good in game one if you can accelerate your mana out from Serum Visions, they just don't have the impact in game two and three that you want. And that will be combined with a cut of a single Fertile Ground and currently the Repeal, as the Repeal is great against the early aggro decks, but against post, you don't really have anything to bounce, and you don't want to be bouncing your own land enchantments just to, to cycle the card. So that ends up being the like five first cards that I want to cut, which will be the four Thermocast and a Hydroblast. And then I will, depending on what the ma match is like and what the player is like, I will cut a, an additional Temporal Fissure for the second Hydroblast. All right, so there's another Cloud Post deck I'd like to talk about, which is Demir, blue-black Cloud Post, which is not as popular but does show up every once in a while. Uh, is this going to be a similar matchup here? Does it have any uh, things that kind of change it up because they're playing black instead of red? Yes, this matchup is, is significantly more enjoyable to play from our end, although my numbers indicate that it's more or less the same in terms of my overall win percentage, their deck has a lot less interaction with you. The only reason that this deck can do quite well against you is if they do their land destruction equivalent without all of the land destruction, which is really their most valuable tool against you. Blue-black post is probably the best post deck for us. Mono-blue post is quite an interesting one to play and can actually operate slightly better for them than blue-black, but again is a favourable matchup. So their strategy, since they have more hard counters and all of the bounce, is just to try and stop everything you do early in the game, which is something that blue-black post just can't do because it doesn't have the same number of counters. So blue-black post is typically really quite favourable. Duress is a slight problem, but really not very much, because 
often with a number of your combo spells, you're perfectly happy for them to be in the graveyard instead of your hand when you're starting to go off. Because when you go off, you can just cast Archaeomancer and return that Ghostly Flicker or Fisher back to your hand. You don't actually need it in hand in order to go off. Yep, that makes sense. So for this matchup, you don't have the addition of bringing in Hydro Blast, but I'm assuming you still bring in the Thermocarst. Yes, that varies between two and four as to whether or not you're on the play and the draw. Um, but yes, you don't need the Hydro Blast in this matchup because they don't have the land destruction which Hydro Blast is there to counter, which means that you don't have to dilute your deck as much by taking out cards that you really want to be playing. So... In general, Blueback Post is a deck that you really do want to be facing. Not quite as good as White Weenie, say, which is practically a buy, but more or less. Well, it's funny that you mentioned White Weenie, because we're actually going to be talking about that next. There's essentially three categories of decks that only attack through a creature plan, and they don't have reach to uh, kind of finish you off with burn, and that would be Mono Green Stompy, which is very popular right now, also White Weenie and the Hexproof deck. So did you want to talk about these individually, or do you want to kind of group them together? Well, I think firstly it's worth mentioning and discussing the Stompy matchup in a bit more detail, and then we can apply those lessons to the other two um, more linear aggro decks. So Stompy is now possibly um, the most popular, or at least on a par with Delver and Blue Red Post, as the three most and clearly most popular decks. Stompy is a great matchup for us as long as you play everything correctly. Their forms of interaction, game one is more or less just limited to Vines of Vastwood, which you which you really do need to be considering. Notice when they have it, how to get them to play it in a way which doesn't wreck you, because them using it to counter something like a snap or the right target of a ghostly flicker can be really important if you're not prepared for it. The other important element from Stompy is that in games two and three, they bring in Scattershot Archer, which is okay to the extent which it slows them down slightly because they only have a one-mana creature, one-power creature. But it is something which you typically have to have off the board for the turn that you actually go off, which is why the repeals that are coming in from the sideboard make quite a big difference because you you don't have to waste a snap trying to take the Scattershot Archer off the board, you can use Repeal, which cantrips, which slows them up, and allows you to develop your position. Before, I only had Serrated Arrows, which is a very clumsy way of dealing with it, and I'm much happier now with the current situation of the deck. Although, over the course of my recordings, I've only actually lost one match to Stompy. I feel that it's a deck which is well worth putting the, the time and notice in, because it is becoming such a popular part of the metagame, and it doesn't take that much to play around what they do have and make sure that you come out with the win. Okay, so I would imagine that a typical game is going to play out with them pressuring you from turn one and really putting a clock on you. And as you mentioned, really their only way to interact with your initial combo is with Vines of Vastwood, which I think we should mention to people. They're going to be targeting your creatures with that and not their own, which is something that might be overlooked initially. Uh, is there any other intricacies to how a typical game is going to play out? I think Vines of Vastwood really is the major one. Sometimes they will need to use it to target their own creatures as well. And it also means that you need to bear in mind what you're targeting with your snaps a lot more clearly in this in this matchup. 
Snap is a card that in a number of matchups you'll just use to return a creature to your hand, make a bit of mana, maybe on a mole drifter for the for the cards, um, which is quite a nice use of it. But in this matchup, Snap becomes a lot more important as to exactly when and how you play it to make sure that you maximize its usefulness and try and draw out the vines or have the vines cast on your creatures and not mean that that ruins you. So that card is something that you need to be a lot more aware of when playing the Stompy matchup than usual. Yes, the games typically play out in a pretty linear fashion. They'll play a number of creatures. Um, Rancor is an interesting spell, again, where Snap can be used to counter a Rancor, and that can be quite an important part of just slowing down their clock enough that it will give you an extra turn or so. And I think that it's the sort of matchup where as long as you're on top of when they could possibly kill you, you normally do have the space to combo off. But don't be afraid to use up some of your spells and stick a few creatures in the way if it's going to give you more time. Sounds like good advice. So you've talked about the sideboarding a bit. Can you just kind of clarify, you know, what's going to come out, what's going to go in? And it sounds like they really are just going to bring in Scattershot Archer to combat you. Yes, sometimes they bring in other cards like Gleeful Sabotage and Nature's Claim. And also Hornet's Sting is something that you need to bear in mind. These cards I'm a bit ambivalent about in terms of playing from my side because they do slow my opponents down. So in some ways I can be happy to see them. But you do need to play correctly, particularly with something like Gleeful Sabotage. You can often only need to play out one land enchantment at a time, hold the other one back for the turn that you're going off, and then you can really minimize the impact that these um, artifact and enchantment destruction spells play. Also, another thing that's worth bearing in mind is that if, you're, if you've got Moments Peace and you need that Moments Peace mana up in games two and three, you should try to make sure that you can cast that Moments Peace regardless of whether they have nature's claim given that it's an instant and there's say you have an island with an overgrowth on it and you have a simic growth chamber and another land say a forest and you need to be flash flashing back a moment's piece you should always tap the island with an overgrowth on it and leave the other two up so that if they cast an end of turn nature's claim then you don't just lose the game right there that sounds like a good tip so what are you taking out of your main board to uh, to board into your your sideboard stuff so this is one of those matchups where Repeal is really useful and quite a nice new addition to the deck. It can buy you time with a cantrip, and again, like I said before, is great be Scattershot Archer. So you're going to be bringing in two Repeal, as well as the Moments piece, and then sometimes Serrated Arrows and sometimes not. I think Serrated Arrows is a card that I'm a bit ambivalent about in the Stumpy matchup, because normally it's not enough to just shut them down by itself, unlike against Delver, say, where it can be a lot more game-changing. So what you then tend to be bringing out is Coiling Oracle, which is a nice versatile card, but is one that you often take out in sideboarding because it's not always the absolute best against any given deck. So you'll be cutting two Coiling Oracle, one Ghostly Flicker because it's not very good on its own, potentially one Fertile Ground. That's one that is one of those just one-offs you fairly commonly cut, but you but you may want to leave in. And then two of Ponder and two of the Temporal Fishers. So quite commonly, one at least one of the temporal fishes will go, but quite often both. What's happening here is that we're changing some of our pure combo elements, and temporal fisher, which often isn't the absolute best option against Stompy, for cards which are real all-stars against them. So moments piece, which flashback time walk, 
and repeal, which can be really useful just to slow them down and deal with those scattershot archers. You said we can extrapolate some of the the basic, I guess, core foundation of this matchup and extend it to the White Weenie and the Hexproof deck. So why don't you talk about how those are similar? White Weenie and Hexproof are both matchups where you can completely rely on Moments Peace. They can't do anything about a Moments Peace, which means that you can go down to the very smallest amount of life, bearing in um, Acacian Javelineers, um, for that, that minor other element. But you can go down to, say, three to five life, and it's not a problem at all against these decks. You can cast Moments Peace multiple times, return them with Archaeomancer, and just you get so many extra turns, which they may or may not be expecting to see, but that you can really take advantage of to slowly assemble your combo. And given that their level of interaction is relatively minimal, it means that these are really favourable matchups. White Weenie has a number of interesting small utility creatures for which Serrated Arrows is a really nice answer. So things like Suture Priest used to be a bit of a problem with some old builds of the deck, and even Acacian Javelineers trying to target Cloud of Fairies, and those type of cards where Serrated Arrows can just deal with them before you have to go off. But in general, they're, they're just really great matchups, which, I, it, which you're at a struggle to lose. <laughs> Okay, did you want to say anything else about those matchups, or are you cool with moving on? I think so, unless you've played White Weenie a certain amount. I'm not sure how you feel about the matchup. Uh, yeah, obviously I've played a ton of White Weenie over the course of my uh, you know, experience with Popper, but I haven't really faced this deck on the other side of the table, so I can't comment. I, you know, I've played against it with other decks, and just in the abstract, I feel like it would be a very difficult matchup, especially after sideboarding when you have four copies of Moments Peace, which is essentially eight fog effects uh, that you can play. And, you know, from what I've seen of this deck, it really doesn't need a lot of time to go off to begin with. So even buying two to four turns, if you even see two copies of Moments Peace, is just an infinite amount of time, as far as what I've, you know, what I've encountered. So I can see this being very difficult for a white weenie. Maybe, I mean, a few things I could think that might be okay is if they resolve a Guardian of the Guild Pact before you go off, but that's, I mean, there's no guarantee that that would happen. Perhaps hitting an enchantment early with, like, a Core Sanctifiers, but that's, again, very slow. And I think Suture Priest may be the only, one of the only things that could really give some reach here and, and do some damage. So, yeah, it sounds like a pretty much a nightmare matchup. Yeah, absolutely. The Core Sanctifiers is a bit too slow. Serrated Arrows or a Bounce Spell tend to deal with the Suture Priest. And Guardian of the Gate Pact, I don't remember the exact name, used to be a problem against some much older builds of this deck. But now you have Quilling Oracle, which you can block and flicker in Game 1. And then Game 2, you can use Serrated Arrows on it, or just a recurring moment's piece. This is one of the important things to bear in mind against Hexproof, which is that sometimes, say they have a forced adaptation, get one of their creatures up kind of larger, and then can recast Rancor on their turn on it, you can completely shut that down, not just by your wall of flying creatures, but also by permanently recurring moments piece. Sometimes you don't even need to bounce all of their permanents, but with a moment's piece in the graveyard, a ghostly flicker on two Archaeomancers, then you can just target both Archaeomancers, return flicker and piece, and cast it, and do that every single turn so they can just never deal you any damage. Let's move on then to Affinity here, which has also seen a resurgence in popularity. 
How is this matchup for you? Do you find it to be favorable? So far, I've found that Affinity has been very favorable. The builds that don't run the Flingatog sort of combo kill are obviously much easier and are just to buy practically because they're just playing medium-sized, slightly slow big creatures which you can use Mehmet's piece against. In the Flingatog builds, you actually don't board in more than maybe one or two copies of Moments Peace, and you do board in the two Hydroblast, because they bring in things like Pyroblast and Raze to try and put you off your game. I think the pre-ban, I had an 85% win rate against Affinity. That's been more like two-thirds post-ban, but I think that's just relatively small data sets rather than anything particularly notable. Although I do feel that some figure in between the two is probably closer for the Flingatog builds as they are more common. They're certainly the majority of the Affinity decks um, and are slightly stronger because they can just kill you out of nowhere sometimes. Right, so I'm assuming a typical game is going to be them pressuring you with creatures maybe you know around turn two, turn three, and uh, you essentially comboing off on them unless they are, like you said, able to achieve their combo maybe sooner than that. Um, what, what are some of the important cards on their end? Is it mostly a Tog Fling, or can they have some pretty explosive starts with things like Frog Mites and Mirror Enforcers? Yeah, I mean, in general, the vanilla creatures aren't that much of a threat, and the real thing is whether or not they have the Fling and a Tog. I did play a game a day or two ago where the guy had turn two carapace forger and then turn three frogmite and three mirror enforcers and my hand was really not particularly good and i just didn't draw anything so that can be quite a quick clock but it's relatively rare they'll put quite that much pressure on to go for a turn four kill in general they're just that bit slower than the most aggressive of the aggro decks and don't have quite as much reach compared with Goblins, say. So you do need to be very much aware of Galvanic Axe Game 1, and then whatever sideboard they're likely to be bringing in for Games 2 and 3. But in general, it's another one of these aggro matchups where they're typically just not quick enough to kill you before you get to combo off. Okay, and now we can talk about sideboarding just a little bit. You already mentioned that in the builds with Fling, you're going to bring in your Hydro Blast and your Moments Piece, and then the ones without, I'm assuming you're just bringing in Moments Piece then? Yeah, again, the ones with um, that don't run the Fling at all builds, which I'm really not sure why people would be running. I don't really understand it. It seems much weaker to me, but then they're just like an ordinary vanilla creature aggro deck, in which case you just board in moments piece. Against the Flingatog builds, which is the, the large majority, like I say, and significantly the better build as far as I'm concerned, you board in two Hydroblast and then some number of moments piece, depending on the exact composition between the axes and flings that they run, but typically two probably, and then you do the usual thing of cutting two Coiling Oracles, a Ghosty Flicker, and against them a Repeal, as a lot of their permanents aren't cheap enough to bounce. So let's talk about Goblins here, one of the fallen aggro decks. It, it has shown up a little bit lately, but not nearly as popular as it once was. Um, so how is this matchup going to play out, and how favorable is it for the Simic Storm deck? I feel that Goblins is a really underrepresented deck and deserves a bit more of a space in the modern metagame. I think that it's a very interesting deck, 
my old strategy of it to treat it like any other aggro deck wasn't terribly successful. So trying to run moments piece and just take that more sitting back stance of trying to just weather the storm wasn't terribly successful as they play enough creatures to have a swarm out as well as having the burn that can reach over the top to deal nine damage without too much difficulty just off their burn spells. With my current sideboarding strategy, it's changed into a lot more of a interactive putting them off their game. And I often, again, won't really board in many, if any, moments piece. It'll be down to the Una's Gate Warden, the Repeals, and the Serrated Arrows, just to make sure, and the Hydroblast, of course, just to make sure that you can deal with their turn one and then possibly turn to threat before it deals you any damage, which can just slow them down so much that you get enough time to combo off. And then for the sideboarding, you already mentioned that you tend not to bring in moments piece. So uh, on their side of things, are they bringing in, I'm guessing, Pyroblast and probably Rays if, they, if they're playing that then? Yes, I mean, Rays is probably their best sideboard card against me if they're running it. I'm not sure how good it is in Goblins right now as opposed to a, a straight-up land destruction spell. Because when you start putting yourself down to, say, one mana against post, or possibly even down to two, it just stops you having that level of interactivity. Although the early speed bump is quite, quite useful. In general, Pyroblast is fine for them. But it doesn't really operate any differently to a burn spell in in a lot of circumstances. And I don't think that it's a major problem for us to face coming from them. Because it tends to just replace another card which we would have to deal with anyway. So as long as you don't completely play into it, it's not normally a, a major issue. The bigger point is how much and what composition their land destruction takes. So let's go ahead and talk about uh, a red deck that might be a little more problematic at times, and that's going to be the burn deck. So how is this matchup, uh, and would, are you kind of worried when you see this against against you, or do you still feel pretty confident? No, but burn is the one matchup out of this, this list of matchups that we've been talking about, which if I see them go turn one, mountain, lava spike, or suspend rift bolt, it's a kind of head-in-hands experience. This is by far, I think, the worst matchup that I have. Two Hydroblast really isn't very much coming out of the board against them. And it's the sort of matchup that I just expect to lose most of the games against. I okay, Like, you will pull out matchups just because the deck can combo off reasonably fast. So actually, looking at my records, having played against it twice, I'm 1-1, but it really doesn't feel like an even matchup. I think they, they're definitely the favorite. Sure, and I'm assuming a typical de- game is just going to be a race, essentially, where they're just racing to try and get you to zero, and you're trying to uh, combo off and win before they can do that. And I would imagine that their cards aren't necessarily that important individually. It's just that they're trying to get an amalgamation of damage in in a certain amount of time is that is that accurate yeah i mean i think burn is pretty badly placed in the format at the minute i think glimmer post is a major issue playing against the control decks combined with them just having enough counters to deal with it and it also isn't fast enough particularly combined with the interaction that say delva provides to make it through but against me it is very effective because all of my usual 
forms of interaction, things like temporal fissure or playing some creatures to block or a bounce spell, a snap, say, here or, here or there, they're all just completely irrelevant, basically, against the burn deck. And although their clock isn't that fast, it tends to be just about fast enough that you should be expecting to lose it, especially since they can also have things like Searing Blaze or even just their targeted burn spells. If they really need to, they can just shoot off one of your creatures at an important point so you don't they have interaction with you and you have no interaction with them that makes sense and they have so many spells that are essentially removal spells as well if they need them to be that they're not going to really be in that type of position where where they're not going to have that option i suppose yeah absolutely it's the sort of deck which I'm glad makes up a very small portion of the metagame. But it's also one of those decks which I don't see increasing radically. Because although it's got a good matchup against us, it just doesn't feel very well placed as a deck. So it's something which, if it were a major part of the metagame, I'd have to massively change my sideboard, maybe try and do crazy things like running Copred. But it's just not something that I think is high on my priority list to deal with. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. Uh, as far as sideboarding, I guess you mostly just have um, Hydroblast to bring in here, and then do they really have anything in particular they're bringing in? I'm guessing maybe Pyroblast? Yeah, so I'm not sure um, exactly on what a standard burn list might look like at the minute, since it's not a deck that I've been seeing around often enough. I guess they probably have possibly some Pyroblast, probably... Maybe Molten Rain, since that's also a burn spell, as well as the LD um, that might be coming in from the board. In general, yeah, there's a lot of cards which you don't really want to have, and they're in quite a good spot. Since Temple Fisher is not particularly strong against them, I'd be boarding out those two, boarding in two Hydroblast, possibly leaving it that, maybe bringing in a Repeal or two just for your own guys. But they also have Kiln Fiend out of the, in the main deck, which can be okay, because you can make them just use lots of mana, casting and recasting Kiln Fiend, but other times they can just wipe you out with it and kill you straight away, so all in all, it's not great. Okay, so we've got one deck before we start talking about the other combo decks in the format, and that's Mono Black Control. So how favorable is this matchup, and how worried are you to see this across the table from you? Mono Black Control is an excellent matchup, particularly the new um, Unearth build that people have been running. It's the sort of deck which really doesn't have enough of a clock. The discard often just doesn't do enough against you since a lot of your spells, you're quite happy for them to go into your graveyard because you're just going to return them later when you need them and you don't worry if ghostly flickers and snaps hit the bin. And it seems really bad for an opponent to cast your rest and then all they get from it is a preordain. I think that the matchup is really good, even against the builds which have six to eight land destruction spells in the board. They can really grind it out, but I've I've won games before where my opponent has played five land destruction spells against me, but because there just isn't enough else of the deck, if you cast Moldrifter, you almost just win the game right there. That's pretty wild. So a typical game's going to play out with them disrupting you, but not really having a fast enough clock, it sounds like. Yeah, and the one thing that you really need to bear in mind in this matchup is to notice what removal spells they have and can play. Because if you play everything correctly, there's no reason for you to lose. But if you play into a snuff out or a spinning darkness, since they're free, it's relatively easy to do. 
but you can often play around even those in terms of the order you cast your spells when you try and aim to combo off. They often have relatively little pressure, so you can just wait them out rather than having to really go for it like you might against Delver if you ever get a window of opportunity. Okay, and do you board anything in at all for this matchup? And if so, what what's coming in here? I haven't played it with my new board, but I don't think Repeal would be very good against them because obviously it's terrible against the rats. I may well board in the single serrated arrows, but I don't think I'd board anything else and I'm not worried about not being able to. I think if this deck became enough more popular and combined with an increase in, say, mono-green decks or others that choose to run non-red land disruption, I might be inclined to add some number of turn aside in the board, as I think that's the best one-mana counter available. But right now, I don't feel that that's necessary. Okay, yeah, I know Glyph Alias, also from our clan, was playing copies of turn aside in his deck. So that that might be one that ends up uh, being more popular if necessary. And as far as what they bring in for you, I'm guessing they're going to bring in some land destruction, depending on what exactly they're playing. There's a number of black land destruction spells in the format, and probably some more hand disruption as well, I'm assuming. Yes, I mean, the some of the decks don't run any LD in the board, which is great for us. The ones that do, it tends to be... Um, Rolling Spoil and Ice Quake, I think, are the typical options, and they can be pretty strong. Again, it just depends quite how many of them they're able to board in and what other elements they can bring to the table. But in general, it's just a match-up, which, as long as you don't commit too many land enchantments to a single land only in the game, you should find that it's it's really not a major problem. All right, so from here we've got several different Temporal Fisher decks and do you want to tackle these one at a time, or are there a couple we can maybe lump together? Um, we've got yeah, so there's just one more thing that I'd like to say before we move on to the um, Fisher semi-mirrors. Um, on that point of what sideboard slots we have to deal with disruption against us, so potential hate spells, one of the prime options is to look at one-mana counterspells of the various different forms. There's a huge number of different situational counterspells available at a single blue. I mean, envelop counter-target sorcery is kind of an option, although typically turn aside, since it can counter both the land destruction and capsize, is quite a good option. I had tried disrupt in the past, since that cantrips, but it only being a force spike ability means that it was a bit too unreliable to be a permanently successful option. But one thing when building a sideboard for this deck, and when doing the actual sideboarding, is that if you have too many of these reactive cards, you can just thin your deck too much. And then if they cast card draw, say, out of blue-red post, rather than the land destruction, until they can have counter-backup for it, for example, then you can sit there holding up one blue effectively having been LD'd while not actually getting yourself closer to comboing out. So you really need to have that balance. And I actually don't like boarding in more than two or three unless you know they have around eight land destruction spells, in which case I would be tempted to to board in one or two more. Okay, I like that. There's a lot of good info there. So are you ready to move on to the Temporal Fisher kind of mirror matches here? Yeah, absolutely. So the main option has been Esper Storm, so the familiar Storm deck, as I typically call it, which um, runs Azoria's Chancery, 
Dimir Aqueduct and then the Familiars to reduce the cost of spells that operates a relatively similar core structure. Their matchup often comes down to who gets the first Temple Fisher. It's very hard to win for either deck after someone has Temple Fissured you. It's pretty much game over at that point. Um, we have Thermocast coming in from the board. Fantastic if you get to hit the Bounce Lands. Also can be really important in terms of restricting the number of islands and blue sources that they have available because they can be quite restricted when they're trying to go off with the amount of blue that they have. I feel that a Plains is probably the first land that I would most like to see because even if it's not White Weenie and it's Familiar Storm, it's still quite a favourable matchup as they tend to be just a turn or so slower and a bit less able to get everything together in the early game because their draw spells are typically in the form of compulsive research, deep analysis and foresee, whereas we have all the cantrips available, which means that we can develop our board and develop our hand that much quicker and just get in there the turn before they're available to um, properly wreck you. Okay, so it definitely sounds like the uh, the game ones are going to be pretty uninteractive and, and sort of a race, but in a, a less conventional sort of sense, I suppose. I think it's a race to get the first Fisher, and in a sense that's interactive, and they can have the odd thing like a snap or a duress or some kind of way of disrupting the other person, but those tend to be relatively small elements of how the matchup actually plays out. But also bear in mind that when the first person fishes, it's relatively common that they don't actually have a complete combo kill. And you can pull back the odd game where they fissured and they're very likely to win. But because they, particularly the Esper deck, doesn't tend to go infinite properly, um, at least not early in the game, you can sometimes claw back some of those games that look completely lost. I think the Simic Mirror is, it's one which has a certain element of play skill to it, but again, often just comes down to the who gets the first Temple Fisher. Thermocast obviously comes in and can be quite important, but it's and you may well want to have more Temporal Spring if it ever becomes a major force in the metagame, but right now it's just not common enough for me to use any more slots when Thermocast are already really strong. So you're going to be bringing in Thermocast against both the Esper and Simic decks then? Yes, absolutely. All of the Fisher decks require the land to produce more than one mana, so land is always key. All right, and then I suppose, obviously, in the Simic Mirror, they're going to be bringing in uh, that as well against you. And as far as Esper, are they bringing in more duress effects, or do they have something else that can combat what your game plan is going to be? I think particularly now Infect is out and therefore Snuff Out isn't so relevant in Esper boards, which was an okay and potentially a surprise form of disruption against you. It mainly does just come down to those duresses, which really don't present too big a problem. They're much better in Esper than they are in Monobuck Control because they have a lot more threats to follow it up with, but they just aren't enough by themselves to really put you behind, unlike say, against the old-fashioned Red Storm decks, where a duress could be a lot more important in terms of taking out that key piece. The other deck that I'd like to mention here is the Cloudpost Fisher deck, which is very interesting and something that I'm definitely going to keep my eye on because I feel that I'm happy that Simic is probably better than Familiar Storm, at least for, for me right now. But I, I think the 
cloud post shell is something which is definitely successful. And as long as you don't lose all of the strengths of that with the slots that you use for the Fisher combo, it may well be a viable way to take the deck. I played against, I've only played against it once, and it was very interesting to play against it, but they could more or less board into a traditional blue-red post shell with all of the land destruction and pyroblasts, which caused me a big problem, but can then actually just go off and therefore close the door and not let you get back into the game. As far as the matchups, did you have any other ones you wanted to talk about or any any other, uh, I guess, final thoughts on any of these matchups? I guess the only other mild one to mention is um, the Wii Fiend deck, possibly the most, the, the quickest, I guess, semi-combo deck that we see around now. It's not a great matchup for us in a similar way to Burn, say, but they also have Dispel, which is a useful piece of disruption. But again, it's just not a particularly common part of the metagame. I've seen a couple of Infect decks, which have still su- survived the um, Invigorate changes. It's still a, a reasonable deck, I feel. I think that Invigorate definitely hurts it a lot, but it's not something, but it's still got a threat to it, which shouldn't be ignored. Yes, I've mentioned Blue Post, and I think that's pretty much it. I don't think I've seen any other decks even going around in the format. Although the Blue-Red Post deck is also a deck which I'm quite interested in to see how that develops and whether it can take off as a as an alternative in the sort of blue-green sphere, which I'd like to champion. So let's go ahead and kind of wrap things up with this deck. I'll go ahead and give a few final thoughts because I've definitely learned a ton about it since talking to you here today. I didn't know a lot about the deck just just off of my base level experience. But this deck looks like it has a ton of potential. Obviously, you played it for a while now and, and showed extremely stellar results. Uh, and I just think it's really great, once again, that it has influenced a lot of people close to us in the clan to take take it on. It's become more of a team deck now, so there's more people workshopping it and, and getting ideas. And uh, just listening to you talk here, I can tell you, you have a really great mind for the game. You think about a lot of these corner case scenarios, and you think about uh, all the variables that impact games of Magic in ways that a lot of players I don't think do. And uh, this deck definitely seems like it benefits a player like you, and it's something that appeals to me because I think it requires a lot of decision-making and will benefit people uh, based on their skill level and their their capability to think ahead and plan things out so this deck looks very interesting it's one i want to try out once i get enough time to to do it justice i suppose and that's pretty much all i have to say about the deck do you have any other final thoughts you'd like to let people know about or or anything you'd want to inform them about yeah i think i just second that in terms of thinking about every small element of the game and the matchups and exactly what your deck is going to be doing is absolutely crucial with a deck like this i feel that it really makes a massive difference in your overall win percentage it's very easy to lose a couple of cards from scrying incorrectly or half a turn from playing your lands enchantments or something else wrong where the number of games you lose just ends up skyrocketing it's really within the capability of the deck to pull it all together yeah you know i think that uh popper could definitely use more people like you in terms of deck builders and pioneers while we're at it, because especially this point in time in the metagame where there is the potential for people to kind of, I guess, uh, come at it from different angles and try new things and introduce new elements. Uh, I don't see as much of that uh, just talking to people because a lot of people just look at what is there already 
and make assumptions about the metagame based on what they see rather than look going that step ahead and thinking about what can be brought in and and what can combat what's happening right now so uh yeah definitely big props to you there i think we should go ahead and wrap up this episode because we've been going for quite a while here so i'm just going to do some, some quick shout outs and talk about how people can contact the show obviously a shout out to you matt for being on here and and giving just a, a great amount of knowledge you're definitely the premier person to talk about uh, in terms of civic storm you're you are by far the, the the prime expert here i also wanted to give a shout out to chris Plummer and the guys from popper to the people for mentioning us on an episode they promoted our uh, episode 20 which we just had and they also promoted a deck that i was playing on my youtube channel for a blackborder.com article so i appreciate that you guys and also shout out to everybody on twitter who's been promoting the show uh following me retweeting and giving me feedback on on how to make the show better and that's something i'm definitely wanting to do uh as we as we move on as far as contacting me, you can follow me on Twitter at DimeCollectorSC. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash DimeCollectorSC. If you'd like to talk to me on MTGO, my ID is Bamboo Rush, and the clan that Dog Biscuit and I are both a part of is called Popper Gnomes. You can read my articles on mtgoacademy.com. The series is Dime a Dozen. You can also read articles on blackborder.com. And that series is called Common Ground. Uh, as far as contacting the show, you can email us at popperscage at gmail.com. And you can visit our blog, which is popperscage.blogspot.ca. Uh, Matt, why don't you go ahead and give any shout-outs that you might have and let people know how they can reach you. Yeah, I just also wanted to mention Glyph and Zersadar, who'd been members of our clan, who'd taken up and been involved in, in helping develop the deck internally. Um, also, the Raging Frump, Flump and Large Brandon, I think, are other people who've piloted the deck a certain amount um, and have been like influential in, in developing it. I think that also, if, if anyone would like to contact me and would like a bit of help in terms of learning how to play the deck or running through games and that sort of thing, then feel free to get in touch if you have any suggestions for new ideas for the deck. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been Episode 21 of Popper's Cage, and we'll see you again for Episode 22. Take care. Mm-hmm.